Wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I'm your host, Brian R. Solomon, and this is the 20th edition, the 20th episode of Shut Up and Wrestle. And to commemorate this milestone, we have a special guest this week. Um, you're going to be delighted with this because much like guests in the past, like Blue Meanie and Manny Fernandez uh, and so on, this is somebody who uh, was a part of old school wrestling and a part of one of the hottest territories in the history of old school wrestling. I'm talking about the perfect 10 baby doll. That's right. This week we've got baby doll. But before that wonderful conversation, I want to talk a little bit about some of my projects. Um, my book, of course, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original chic is out there. It's on sale. And I'm proud to say that I've got a book signing coming up. So this one, I guess, this is kind of a local reference, but for people within a shouting distance of the state of Connecticut, I'm going to be appearing at the Milford Barnes & Noble in Milford, Connecticut on Friday, July 8th. Uh, from about 5 p.m. to 7 p.m., not not about, from precisely 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. I'll be appearing there, uh, signing copies of the book, talking about the book. I might do a little reading of the book. So if you happen to be in the area, come on down and say hello. And of course, I'll be reminding you in the weeks leading up to that, as I typically like to do. And I also want to remind you that copies of, of uh, Blood and Fire, autographed copies of Blood and Fire, are still available. I do have some left. Uh, for anyone that is interested, feel free to reach out to me at my email address, Solomon at yahoo.com. Or you can reach me uh, through Twitter or through Instagram. I'm Solomon on there. And uh, if you'd like to inquire about buying a signed copy of Blood and Fire. Also, if you want to read my articles in the August issue of Pro Wrestling Illustrated, yes, August. I know this is how magazines work. They're always a few months ahead of time. But the August issue of Pro Wrestling Illustrated is now on sale in digital and physical form. Um, you can get it at getpwi.com. And in the new issue of Pro Wrestling Illustrated, this August issue, I've got my, my two usual columns. My lockdown column, or rather, I should say my lockup column. I'm sorry, I'm still thinking about the pandemic. But in my lockup column, I have um, a piece about Sasha Banks and Naomi as uh, the first black women's tag team champions in WWE history. Of course, now it's unfortunate that they have uh, walked away from the company and, and are no longer recognized as champions, but still the, the historical nature of their win stands. And that is the subject of that column. And I've also got my nostalgia column, the way it was 
in which I talk about one of the forgotten world heavyweight champions of wrestling history and really the top box office draw of the 1940s. I'm talking about Wild Bill Longson, also the inventor of the pile driver. And I write all about him and his career in the Way It Was column, and that's in the August issue of Pro Wrestling Illustrated. Now, it is time. Let's get through all that stuff, and let's get to our 20th episode conversation with the wonderful baby doll. And as you'll find out in this conversation, um, there's a lot more to her than just her her, um, historic time in Jim Crockett promotions. Of course, she grew up in the business because her parents were promoters. Her father, Nick Roberts, was the promoter of Note in Lubbock, Texas for many years. And so we talk about all that stuff. We talk about uh, her childhood, her youth growing up in the business, her, her years in the limelight, in, in uh, Jim Crockett promotions and world class and other places like that. And it was just a lot of fun and a terrific interview. And I'm going to take you to it right now. Okay, so this week on Shut Up and Wrestle, it's my pleasure and my honor to really have somebody here who was there. You know, this podcast is all about old school wrestling. And this week we have an absolute legend of 1980s wrestling. I'm just going to say a couple of things. Um, Grew up in the business because her father was longtime promoter in Lubbock, Texas, and her mother was um, a wrestler in the 1950s. Um, And also, uh, of course, got into the business herself and was one of the, I like to say, kind of like the original female uh, wrestling managers, wrestling valets, one of the first to ever do it. So you'll know her from, you may know her from world-class or Mid-South or Central States, but you definitely know her from the years that she spent at the heyday of Jim Crockett promotions. I'm talking about Nicola Roberts Bird, who is much better known as the Perfect 10 Baby Doll. Hey, y'all. Hey, Brian. Glad to be here. I'm glad to have you here because, you know, it's, and, I, and I'm glad that you were able to do Zoom because here's the thing. I, I, uh, this is a, an old school wrestling podcast, so I love to talk to people who were there. And very often that means people who don't know what a computer is, you know. So, <laughs> so I'm glad that we could do it this way because uh, it's the best way to do it. Well, I'm, I'm fortunate that my daughters were able to teach me like how to at least maneuver through things. <laughs> So if if I get lost, I just kind of have to back up to the start and start all over and I'll get figured out. But we got it. So we're good. Good. I'm so glad this is cool. And, you know, um, I I, I wanted to talk a little bit about your parents, too, uh, and 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 that kind of stuff, because um, the way we first connected, if people don't know, is because of the book that I wrote about the original Sheik, because you, you had reached out to me and I, you know, I I sent you a copy of the book. And I was actually pretty excited that you reached out to me because one of the things I learned writing the book was, which I honestly didn't know, was that the Sheik was a very big deal in Lubbock, Texas, that he he did amazing numbers there. And every time he came to town, it was sellouts all the way. So, I mean, I don't know. You would have had to have been very little at that time. I don't know how much you, you remember, but do you remember anything about him coming through? Wow. Um, I'm surprised you didn't know this. I actually would follow the sheik out to the ring. He would, um, he carried a boa constrictor. Yeah. And um, 
I had the pillowcase that the or the case that the snake went into, and he had the snake in his robe, and he rolled the uh, little uh, um, carpet out and did his prayers and had the snake. And then when he was done, he would I would hold the bag out and he would put the snake in the bag. And so uh, that went on for like a summer. I've got a picture of that where I'm like following him out to the ring. I was maybe 16 at the time. Wow. So yeah, we had like two different summers, if I remember right, that she came through and he did a big program with um, Super Destroyer, which was Art Nelson. Okay. And um, we also bring in, brought in Abdullah the Butcher, worked against him. And I think we had Brody come in, but it was, it was crazy because when Sheik was making major money for my dad, so they had like an Arabian death match. So my dad actually had truckfuls of sand brought in and spread out around ringside all the way to like the second row had sand for like the big main event of the Arabian death match. So that was it was it was a big deal. It really was. It was really cool. That is so cool that to, to go to that length. I mean, that's a real showman right there, you know, meaning your dad well, it is. And when you think it's on like a hard concrete floor, so then you, you know, like dumping, it was easy, but the cleaning up was awful. Cause I think that we either had like square dances or maybe like a big Mexican wedding, like a couple of days after that. So we had to like really get the place cleaned up. My dad had the concession rights for fair park. Wow. So we not only had wrestling every Wednesday, if there was a concert come through or dancing or a wedding or um, square dances, the soccer, he made 20% off from whatever their, their sales were, their merch sales. Plus he had all concession rights. So we sold all the popcorn, all the sodas, everything hmm. for the uh, whatever came through Fair Park. And that, that was some good money there. I mean, we, we made a lot of money selling soda pop. And so did your dad also, and I, I don't know if we even mentioned, but we, your dad was Nick Roberts. I don't think we said his name. We should say that right. your dad was Nick Roberts. Your mother was Lorraine Johnson. Um, and did, did he also promote other stuff at Fair Park? Well, other events, other kinds of events? No, not events, but we had what was called spot shows yeah. where we had um, at one time, three rings for sure. Two rings. We had the stationary one that stayed at Fair Park unless we had to take it down for an event. Or um, we had a traveling ring, which was set up on a trailer and then it folded out for the support. And then we had the ring post on there and the padding and the ring ropes. And then we had another trailer that carried 640 folding chairs and all of our concession stuff. So we could actually take the whole wrestling event on the road with us. And we go to like La Mesa, Plainview, Snyder, um, within a hundred miles uh, right. would be kind of our distance. Cause then you could make it in time. If there was a breakdown, it was close enough where we could get stuff fixed. It wasn't so far away that we were getting anybody else's territory. It was like our deal. So the summertime, especially we would, we ran a lot of spot shows. And if I understand right, was your dad then, getting talent from the funks is that how that worked or was he how was he getting people well at the very first it was out of the amarillo office which would have been right. uh, dory senior and i think uh bob geigel was in on it um there was like one main amarillo office and then you had albuquerque el paso um 
Oh, Abilene, Wichita Falls, and I, I, and I think I said El Paso, but I'm not sure. Uh, Gory Guerrero was in on that too. So you had, it, they rode what was called a bicycle. Like Monday was, um, can't, okay, Sunday was Albuquerque. Monday was El Paso. Tuesday would have been Abilene. Lubbock was Wednesday. Thursday was Amarillo. And I can't remember what Friday and Saturday, they kind of switched up. But every every night, you know, you were in the same town. Like Monday was for sure like Abilene and, you know, like that. So right. it um, usually about 200, maybe 300 mile trip at the most. So it wasn't a lot, but you could really, if you work that territory, you could really build up your character. Yeah. Really get a lot of heat. The road trips weren't terribly hard. Um, it was just, I think the guys really liked working the talent, the the territory at the time, because it was pretty well easy. Everybody knew how to work. They had a lot of guys coming in to be trained, like uh, Ted DiBiase uh, spent the summer uh, training with the Funks. Um, Tully trained that way. You know, he was going to West Texas State and then would train by like wrestling whenever he could. It was... Um, it was a good time. It was a, it was really cool. And then you, it was so cool to see like wrestling on Saturday and then my dad promoting it and then find out who was going to show up for the following week. You know, like who was coming into the town because they were bringing a new talent, but then you had established talent. So. What, what I thought was interesting, because I was reading a little about it, um, that when you got into the business yourself in, you know, in front of the camera later on, that you still weren't totally smartened up to how it was done, <laughs> which I thought was amazing because you would think that you would have been, I mean, growing up around it so much, but I guess a lot of times they, they would even keep their kids in the dark. Right. I mean, you, there was you, no reason, there was no reason to smarten us up because the right. more people you tell, the more chance that the story is going to get told. So whenever my brother and I would walk in the room and like my mom and dad were talking about the show, or uh, money or you know like something we weren't supposed to be hearing they'd say kayfabe and everybody they would immediately change the subject or quit talking or something well whenever I was real little I thought that kayfabe was like another child and I was like <laughs> looking for someone to play with like well who's Kay? I want to you know we got a friend <laughs> and then it wasn't until I had heard my parents talking about they were going to bring in a, a girl for Gino because they had the deal going on with Stella and Sunshine where Sunshine had had to go and had some medical issues come up. So she'd gone away for a while. They had brought her truck driving auntie of Stella May to come in and take care of business for her while she was gone. Well, at that time, you didn't have guys touching the girls at all i mean if you had a mixed tag they tagged out and the girls went out there just wasn't any um intergender stuff at all right. so for gino to take care of the situation and and not put his hands on stella then he would um he need they needed someone and they were like a bodyguard they they had tossed around a whole bunch of stuff so i got in my mind like i would be perfect for this <laughs> so i my dad actually had like a black book with all the numbers in it. So I took his black book. I went to a boyfriend's house. I used his phone so that the phone number wouldn't show up on my parents' phone records so that they wouldn't know that I'm like calling Dallas whenever they didn't know. So I went down there, I called and David Manning happened to answer the phone. 
And I was like, hey, David, this is Nicola. And heard my parents talk and gave them the spiel. And, and I think that it would be perfect for me. I said, I'm smart. I'm pretty. I said, I might be what you want. And David was just like, you would be perfect. He says, let me go up and talk to Fritz. They were getting ready to have a meeting with Fritz at the time. So he says, I'll call you back as soon as the meeting's over. I'll let you know what they say. So I'm waiting, waiting. And so David called back. And sure enough, about an hour, hour and a half later, he said that Fritz loved the idea. The only bad part was who was going to tell my parents. <sighs> and I thought, well, if I'm going to be a big girl, this is a time to grow up. And see, at the time I was going to school, I was uh, in EMT school. I was, I was going to ride around in the ambulances and save people. And then eventually become a paramedic and go to Colorado and do ski patrol. And um, this was a complete 180 of what my parents thought I was going to do with my life. But I mean, they kind of, I was 22, so they really couldn't say anything, you know, I mean, they could, but, you know, I think at 22, 23, you're kind of got your own thing going on. And um, so whenever I told David that I was smart and pretty, he thought I meant smart as in the business. Right. That's so, what I thought. That's what I thought too. When exactly. You said well, yeah. I meant smart, like in book smart, like, yeah, I'm right. going to college and I'm Dean's <laughs> List and yeah. I'm, so anyway. So whenever they gave me my first match was in San Antonio, Joe and Harry Coliseum. And I believe there was like uh, Gary Hart might've been in the Gary Hart, Ken Mantell, uh, Gino, uh, Stella, myself, and uh, Mike were all in, all in my dressing room. And they gave me what they wanted me to do and where they wanted me to be and the whole thing. And there was like seven to 10 places where I had to be at the right place at the right time in the match or it was going to screw up everything. So they're going through everything. And um, I remember Ken Mantell saying, do you have it? And I was like, yeah. And he says, well, what do you mainly want us to want you want from you? And I said, uh, to be, to look like I'm big and bad and can kick their ass. And he said, that's exactly right. He says, you got it. He says, uh, you're up next. I was like, okay. Well, when they left, I'm like in the dressing room going, oh, my gosh, that's how they do it. That's, <laughs> oh, my God. They had no idea they had smartened me up. I kind of had an idea of like how the dance went, but I had no idea. It was so precise and so right complicated. And for me, like for my first finish, that was I was impressed because I didn't miss. I didn't miss anything. And so far, I, I don't think I have missed anything. But just to have something that complicated for your very first match, it was pretty cool. So you never, as a kid, asked your dad about any of that? Like tried to sort of get it out of him or anything like that? Oh, my parents were very closed lip about the business. We, they didn't talk money. They didn't talk finances. There was a definite veil mm. between my dad who went and shot pistols and rifles and was a big game hunter and went fishing and took us outside all the time to win. It was business. Cause whenever he was on the phone, we had better be quiet whenever we were like did road trips or got to go on the road with him. It wasn't happy fun time. It was probably 90% we were going to work and it was very financially um, serious and my, it wasn't happy fun time at all. Like when we were like breaking down, we had time limits of like how fast we had to have the chairs down and 
like our ring set up, like if we went and did a spot show, it had to be completely set up at, by one o'clock in the afternoon. That way, if we had a flat tire or not enough chairs or we couldn't get in the building or something happened, then we had a leeway of about four hours just in case something happened. Now I go to spot shows all the time and indie shows and the ring's getting set up at five o'clock. And that right. just blows my mind because it's just like, wonder if something happened. But my I've dad has right. building me a very strict work ethic that you know, like a lot of times you go to wrestling shows, the kids are all running around playing and stuff. No, we were, we had seats and we sat in them when we were little. And then once we had a job, it was uh, very serious and accountable. And yeah, my dad put a very strict work ethic in myself and my brother. So, uh, and I wanted to ask about that because and I want to mention your mom actually too, because we've been talking about your dad, but your, your mom was Lorraine Johnson and she was... Uh, kind of part of the scene when it was Billy Wolf and Mildred Burke kind of running women's wrestling, right? And right. and I know you've said that she was really didn't want to talk about it and was not didn't seem to be that crazy about the wrestling business or and, and you ne you never really knew why she just kind of had a really bad experience, I guess. I think that I I don't know if it was a bad experience. I think that. At the time, and, and looking back, because my mother was a beautiful woman. I mean, she won Marilyn Monroe lookalike contest. She didn't leave the house without putting makeup on and having designer clothes. And she held herself to a higher degree than a lot of other women did. And I think that whenever they found out, oh, you're a professional wrestler, it's kind of hard at that time not, not to be snide and mm. cheeky and oh yeah wrestling's fake or like and especially with a girl wrestler that would be you're like well what else do you do type thing and she just didn't want right. to put up with the remarks she didn't she just wanted to be a mom and a businesswoman because she helped my dad promote a lot I mean she sold I bet you 90 percent of the tickets you know out of the show and everything and she took care of the money and that whenever the show was getting ready to um, like after intermission, she would slip out the side and go and get in her car and go to the house and have the money. A lot of times she'd have 15, 20 grand on her, you know, mm. and just so, so, you know, she was tough. She also, it was business to her. Um, she was a great mom, really, really smart, like read all the time. We had um, magazines, probably 12 to 15 magazines a week coming in the house where she'd you know, from National Geographic and Audubon and Field and Stream and Sports and Field. I mean, the whole gamut of magazines and go to the library. And she always liked to um, be very well-read and educated and listen to talk radio shows. And um, when you think about it, my mom was probably 30 or 40, maybe even 50 years ahead of her time. Because when you think about it, in the 50s, women were just starting to maybe get work and if right. you did work it was very unusual and, and well why do you have to work you know but for her to have her own car and money and travel and you'll get to go to Australia and Mexico and all over the United States and really be your own boss that was um, so far ahead of her time you know I just uh, am amazed at that and I wish that she would have talked to me more about it but I think that you know, being a girl wrestler isn't glamorous and, and it's kind of like, 
almost shady in a way. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so especially I, I back then. Once, yeah. Once she just, she just didn't want to have to deal with the comments. I think it is just, if you just don't talk about it, then you just, nobody else will talk about it either. Right. And, you know, it, it, it just it, it reminds me of something that I kept finding out, like even when I was researching the Sheik book and with his wife, Joyce, because, of course, the Sheik is the promoter in the Detroit area. And um, so often it seems like the wives of the promoters were so important. And, and I don't think that they get mentioned enough where, you know, people would say the same thing about Joyce Farhat, that she was the businesswoman, like she was the one you, you would talk to about money and she was the one who signed the checks and that kind of thing. And that seems to be the case a lot of the times that it was the man, you know, who, who was the face of the promotion. And you talk about the promoters, but their wives were doing so much. So this really right. seems Look to at, like check uh, out. I can't remember her name, but Stu Hart's wife was right. A, another name. one. Yeah. Helen Hart. Right. Another Mellon. great, great example right. of that. Right. Yep. Yeah. So did you have an did, and Dorothy did, Funk? Dorothy Funk was oh, right. Like yeah. Name. Yes. And same with like Fritz's wife. So yeah, there was a lot. So strong did you, women behind strong men. So yeah. Yeah, it's so true. And it kind of makes you wonder because, you know, you're talking about a time period, like you said, where women just weren't getting the same opportunities. It kind of makes you wonder how many female promoters there would have been if they could have done it on their own. You know, I mean, they, I think there was like one or two, but you don't really hear about it too often where it was a woman right. w without the man. You know, she's just doing it herself, that kind of thing. It's just well, a different look time. At, look at like with Moolah, look at how many girls that Moolah took care of that, um, you know, she had that camp in Colombia, and that she took in girls that, I don't want to say that nobody wanted, but they were runaways. They were sure. uh, addicts, alcoholics. They were kind of like the girls that they had nowhere else to go. So they went to Moolah's and Moolah really helped them like make money and travel. And, you know, everybody, well, I don't want to say everybody, but there for a while, people were so down on Moolah, but I don't think they realized how much Moolah actually helped people. And maybe she had to be rough on some of them, but look at what they came from and look at what she was expecting from them. So. Right, right. And so I, I want to talk about that a little bit, because I mentioned it at the beginning. And I just want to be clear about this, especially for for younger listeners, because a lot of times people listen to to the show that weren't even born, you know, at the time. And, you know, people always talk about, obviously, WWE and the Divas and there was Sonny and there was Sable and all that. And if, and if you go back before that, people will remember Miss Elizabeth in the WWF. And I think what people sometimes don't realize is that before all that, um, it seemed like to me, and for whatever reason, it was world class, where you had this group of women who were really the first. And that's why I said it at the beginning. And I'm thinking of you and I'm thinking of uh, Sunshine. I'm thinking of Precious. And that was really like the first wave of women as managers or as as right. valets um, in wrestling. Why did it seem like it was it was in world class where this was like really starting up? Was there a reason or was it just a coincidence? Um, the, the luck of someone getting pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jimmy Garvin had his wife, Patty, traveling with him as his valet. Well, Patty. Uh, got pregnant and so Jimmy wanted to keep the gimmick of having a girl because it just worked with her personality the hair the whole thing I mean Jimmy Garvin just needed 
that girl because it just coincided so well. Well, when Patty got pregnant, she, she knew life on the road and she knew how girls were. She knew how guys were. She didn't want anything happening to her marriage while she's home taking care of babies. So they got, I believe it was his cousin, Valerie, to take over the sunshine role or take over the precious role. And then she would be sunshine. So then Jimmy Garvin went into Dallas with sunshine and it blew up. I mean, there right. was no other way to put it. They, De Texas had not seen anything like that. They had so much heat. The vignettes that they were able to do were like sunshine's, you know, like washing the dog and, and picking up poop and the whole thing. It just, it captivated an audience that they had never had before. So everything went crazy at that time. Well, then sunshine being very young and very just susceptible, I guess, to everything, got us into some trouble and got into some addictions and, and just felt it was best to go into the, um, in, into some um, rehab and, and did really well, came back, looked beautiful. That's when Stella and I left. Then they brought in Missy to go against her. And right, then we had Journey and it was just a whole series, you know, like the series of girls that came in just kept taking it to a different level. Texas was just so into that. And it just, it, it spawned me because I was able to go to North Carolina and do the perfect 10 with Tolly. And then a couple of months later, it, uh, Elizabeth started in, in, Flor in New York because I started January of 85 for Crockett. And then she started August of 85 for WWF, I believe. And then Missy was right after that. So right. it was just, it was just like another page turning in the book and it just kept getting better and better. So I just happened to be at the right place at the right time, but how it all started was Jimmy Garvin had Precious. Precious got pregnant, was going to stay home, take care of the babies. They got Jimmy Garvin's cousin, Valerie, to take the sunshine role. And then she right. just took it to a whole, because she had the face. She just, she sold the match so well, whether she was a heel or a baby face, she was just on point, on point. And I think too, the difference for me, because, you know, the WWF was this powerhouse and they were kind of taking over everything. And so for that reason, you had people that knew about Elizabeth because they were everywhere, but there was a big difference for me, if you don't mind me saying, because with the WWF and with Elizabeth, they had a very kid-friendly product and, you know, she was a beautiful woman, but very right. kind of safe and quiet and pure and innocent kind of image that she had, they were afraid to me, it seemed like, to really get into, and they didn't really get into this till years later, like with Sonny and Sable, they were afraid to kind of push the envelope and make it a little more sexy and have the women be a little more like kind of on the evil side and sneaky and devious. And, 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 and with your character, with Baby Doll, they went all in on that. Like, you know what I mean? You were portrayed as like, no one was going to confuse you and Elizabeth is what I'm saying. Very different characters, right? They were all about having you play that kind of femme fatale role that Elizabeth did not do. Right. It was, um, Dusty was able to be very creative with me and with my character and because of my size, because I'm just a little bit shorter than Tolly and that uh, I could be more physical 
Like if I go in and hit somebody, they're going to think that it's going to not necessarily knock somebody out or, or hurt them, but it's going to get their attention more than like if Elizabeth went in and did something. Right. So with mine two plus that I'm more mouthy and more in your face and it, Dusty was just so creative with, with my character and just loved it. And then you also had Tully on the other side who, who made sure we all had the same amount of heat. We all got to do something. It wasn't lopsided. It all made sense. So between Dusty and Tully and with my character, I was just so blessed to be working with the best of the best who could bring out that heel and bring out someone that like 20,000 people would absolutely hate. It was, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. People always talk about, you know, with heels, how it it could be dangerous with the fans, you know, and then sometimes the heat would get almost more than you wanted. Did did you find, you know, because being a woman doing it, that that danger level and that threat was even worse for you? Um, We definitely didn't have the security that they have now, because a lot of times walking from the dressing room, at least to like the back row or ringside. There was like no one. Now, once we got to ringside, we might have someone like escort us to the ring, but then there might not be guard ropes. There might not be guardrails. A lot of times it was just 15 feet behind you. There was fans. And um, yeah, it was, it was intense. A couple of times I had fans jump over the railing uh, several times. I had people hit me, grab me, pull my hair. It was um, sometimes an all-out battle. I remember um, coming back from Fayetteville from the ring. It was during the 30-day deal that I had with Dusty. Dusty would wrap the bull rope around my neck and then pull me back to the to the dressing room because, of, of course, I didn't want to go with him and I didn't want to make the ride back. So I'm like, no, you can't take me. You can't take me. I'm not going with you and be fighting. Well, he's pulling me to the back and someone grabbed a handful of my hair. So Uh Dusty's pulling this way and someone's got my hair this way. So I swung as hard as I could, like to have him let go. And whenever I turned out the corner of my eye, it's a woman standing on a chair and she's got like double handfuls of my hair. And my fist is actually headed towards her stomach and she is pregnant. She is visibly pregnant. So in my mind, I'm putting the brakes on my fist because it's, I felt it was like the cartoon, like, the, <laughs> you know, and in my mind, I'm going, stop, 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 stop. And I barely tapped her. I remember I touched her, but it was more like a tap rather than just hitting her. So, and eventually she let go. So I didn't hit her hard enough to where she immediately let go. I had to like get both hands and just have her, you know, like, let go. But to this day, I'm like, oh, my God, I hit a pregnant woman in the stomach. Hey, listen, she <laughs> was she was trying to hurt you because the thing to me is it, with with the role that they had you play. I mean, you know, to be honest, like the, they were setting you up. They wanted everybody to hate you. You know, oh, yes. they saw, OK, look at this, this mouthy woman, this brat that won't shut up, that won't know her place. And she's getting involved and she's, you know, she's trying to take advantage and then they would see 
the wrestlers, the the baby faces, you know, would finally like, let's say they'd slap you or sometimes they'd right. kiss you, you know? Right. And, and, and I kept thinking, well, this would put it in the thoughts of a lot of fans that, well, I'm going to do that too. I'm going to put her in her place yeah. too. You know what I mean? Especially male I think fans. Dave Chappelle is getting the same treatment <laughs> like with Will Smith. Yeah. It's, it's very much like that. Whatever they see someone else do, they think that they can also do it. It was, um, if you look at like when Dusty, whenever I first got to Crockett and up, I'm, I'm up in Dusty's face and I smack him and he just out of reaction smacks me back and I go down and I'm selling. And you look at the women. This is what, what astounded me. Women with like a cigarette hanging out of their mouth and a beer going, hit her, hit her again, damn it, hit her. And I'm thinking for a woman, yeah. To be telling a man to hit another woman. Oh my gosh, that's just crazy. Just you know, it's funny that you mentioned it. Well, it's not funny, but I mean, it, it's this doing what you did. It had to give you this view of like the dark side of human nature. You know what I mean? Like how 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 dark people could get in their minds when, when, with a situation like that, what you're describing, right. you know? Because I am not baby doll at all. Like the whole character, I'm just the biggest goober and I like to read and I like my music and, and now I'm into farming. But I'm so the 180, which I guess makes the character work the best because either you are the character or you're so separated from it that you put yourself into it. But when you when I looked out and I saw like hundreds of people looking at me that hated me, and I'm thinking, y'all, and it was amusing to me because it's like, y'all have no idea. Y'all are just <laughs> crazy. You know, it's just weird. It's just, but to be able to get that emotion out of them, really, really powerful. Just, just, it's, it's cool to, it, a, a really humiliating experience because when you think that you have that much control you know, like what, what can you really do with it? And then I'm doing a lot of fan fests and meet and greets and autograph things now and people remembering me and it's been almost 40 years and right. the emotions that I can bring out of people is, it's so fun because I take them back to like 1985 sitting on the couch with a grandparent and they're, they're all those memories come back and they'll look at you for like that minute. And it's just like, Oh, wow. You know, it, it brings back a lot and you have right. that much emotion in someone that that's it's, it's really a cool feeling even now. It really is. Yeah. I mean, cause I mean, I've had the experience like, like even talking to you now and I could remember, you know, seeing you as a kid on TV and all this kind of thing. And, you know, it's the same feeling I got. I, I recently got to meet um, some of the Glow Girls at um, an autograph signing, the original Glow Girls from the right, 80s. Right. And one of them was the woman who played Colonel Nanachka, who was like supposed to be the KGB agent, you know, and oh, she yeah, was with the blonde hair. Right. And, yeah, very pretty. And, you know, I usually I play everything cool, but I was just like, if the 12 year old version of me could see this right now, you know what I mean? Like his his little head would explode. You know, it's the same kind of right. a thing. I just I just think that way sometimes. I know it sounds ridiculous, but um, that's why part it's so much fun to get to talk to you. But um, I was wondering if when you were doing this, did you have the experience of a lot? I'm sure you had to of a lot of the boys who remembered you 
from when you were a kid, you know, kind of if they came, if they ever came through Lubbock and now here you are and you're part of the show. And did, did that happen a lot? It really did because everybody went through, cause that's how I knew Tully. Tully, right. you know, I met him when I was 13, 14 years old, when he was going to West Texas state and um, it, and then what was really cool, you know, now that you, a lot of them knew my dad from when he wrestled in the mid Atlantic. Like my dad knew Sandy Scott and he knew Gene Anderson and he knew uh, Jim Crockett when he was a young boy. So they might've known me from working with my dad, but then they also knew from working with my dad from like the fifties and early sixties when he'd worked in the mid Atlantic. So it was, it was a, it was a full circle. Plus then I had the accountability that I knew that they all had my dad's phone number. So if I acted up, they'd be calling my dad and stooging on me. So I, right. I, I knew not to get in trouble because it wouldn't take very long for my dad to find out. And, you know, one thing about your dad, too, I wanted to, to definitely keep talking about what we're talking about. But you reminded me of this when I was looking things up about your dad's career, too. I'm from the New York area. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and um, okay. now I'm, I'm stuck out in Connecticut. But I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. And I found that your dad worked in that area in the early 50s, which I also didn't know that he worked in Brooklyn and Queens on a lot of shows. And this would have been way before you were born, but I didn't realize that he worked up here as well. Oh, yeah. My dad worked um, like Minnesota, Canada, Florida, um, some in Texas, all up and down the East Coast. I mean, you know, you're an indie wrestler. You go somewhere for a couple of months and work and go for another couple of months. And that was the whole fun of it was if, if you could get a spot and you liked the territory and you wanted to stay, you could stay. But if you didn't like it, you had a travel trailer and you picked up and you left. I believe he was actually in the same trailer park as the Von Erichs when their son was killed in oh, upstate boy. New York. Yeah, the 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 electrocution, right? He was electrocuted, right, right. I think. I believe my dad said at the time that he was actually in the trailer that he was staying there because a lot of the boys stayed, you know, like had had the big travel trailers, and they could, you know, like go somewhere and park the trailer and then work out of, you know, whatever territory they were working, have the trailer go back, and then whenever you got ready to leave, you just packed up and had your own loser leave town match, and you left. Right. And, you know, and speaking of that, that reminds me too. Um, Mike DiBiase, he, he, he died in the ring, yeah, in the ring on one of your dad's shows, right? Yeah. Wasn't... He had a massive heart attack. Um, Harley race was on the show. He and my dad were, were good friends at the time. And then um, Ted's mom, Helen hunt. Um, I believe, no, not Helen hunt, Helen. Um, oh gosh. What was her last name? But uh, Wild, she was also a girl wrestler that wrestled with my mom and with uh, my dad. So Ted DiBiase's mom and dad were both pro wrestlers. Do you have any memory of the of the Mike DiBiase incident? No, I was I was like maybe two or three. I was like real young. I I re I do remember like the 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 tragedy and sadness of my parents like for days after that, you know, just because right. they had actually seen like one of their, their friends die. Right. And he, he had the massive heart attack and, and right there coming back from the ring, he passed away. Yeah. That's just 
uh, unthinkable. I mean, it's just horrible to even imagine, especially when it's on your show, you know, that right, make, right. makes it even worse. But, you know, I wanted to get back to the 80s now, which I'm sure everybody's like, talk more about Baby Doll. Talk more. About <laughs> um, you you were, as you pointed out, you were different in also in the sense that you were tall. You looked very athletic. You looked like you could be a wrestler. You you weren't a shrinking violet. You weren't like one of these these little women that would scream and yell and get pushed right. around and that kind of thing. So do you think that, you know, would you have been more interested in wrestling? Because I know like women's wrestling at that time, like today, there's there seems to be so many more opportunities for women to wrestle and to be a, an equal part of the show. And I think that's probably why you don't see female valets that much anymore. Was that something that you would have wanted to do more of? That at the time, I mean, I knew even like in elementary and, and junior high and high school, I mean, I I was going to college as something to do until I actually wrestled. And that was, that was something that I always wanted to do. I wrote papers about it, like in high school and college and, you know, what you had to go through, but there wasn't really the training like there is now. And hopefully, you, you know, like get someone to work with you. And then I knew my parents weren't going to do it because that was like the last thing that they wanted me to do. But because of my size, I think it held me back because most of the girls, I mean, to be five, seven, five, eight, you were like really tall. And then like as tall and athletic as I was, it, it would be, I didn't see myself like putting somebody over. I mean, I'd really have to be, you know, I want, I'd want to be the star. And um, so that was always something in the back of my mind that I could have done, but I mean, I trained and I was horrible. I mean, I, I worked out at Nelson's school for, gosh, it was like a whole summer, probably like four months. And I just couldn't get my brain into it. There's the, the one thing with being a, a pro wrestler is you can really, really, really want to be a wrestler, but unless your brain is able to retrain itself to fall and fall really hard, because when you're like a small child, you teach yourself not to fall. You teach yourself how to walk, not to fall, not to bump into things because it hurts. <laughs> but when you train to be a wrestler, you have to completely re reverse your mindset because you're throwing yourself back and you're throwing yourself back as hard as you can. And you're doing all these big tumbles and big falls and everything. And unless you can get your insides and your heart to make your brain go, okay, we can do this your brain goes, uh, uh it hurts. We're not doing this anymore. And smart people don't become professional wrestlers because your brain actually goes, stop it. That hurts. You're going to hurt yourself. Cause when you think if you just pick someone up and slam them down, people say, oh, that's fake. That's the whole thing. Do you know what that does to your insides to like your liver, yeah. your stomach and your heart? I mean, it's like having a, a car crash every time. Yeah. And I, I think that's why a lot of times older, older wrestlers, Sometimes they have organ failures, like at an earlier age than you would expect it to happen because right. their, their guts are constantly being jarred around by, by hitting exactly, things all the time. Exactly. So I, I kind of think that maybe I was too smart for it. My brain comes <laughs> like, no, can't do it. It just, it hurt too much. And I couldn't get over the the whole thing. And, and it, um, and what you're saying, like with the wrestlers, I think that in, in my idea or philosophy of it is that the guys took 
so many muscle relaxers just to relax and come down and because they hurt so bad. They didn't realize that your heart and your lungs and your brain are all part of your muscular uh, structure. So if you're taking a muscle relaxer, you're also relaxing your heart. You're mm -hmm. also relaxing your diaphragm and how you breathe. And I think at some point your brain just goes, okay, we're, we're relaxed and you don't come back from it. Yeah. And I think that that might be one of the things that happens like with, especially with the guys that were dying in their thirties and forties, because that their system had built up such a tolerance to it that you just relaxed yourself almost to death, you know, cause your heart's not going to come back from that. So. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And as far as like it, I'm just, oh, go on. So go back on. to your question was, I happen to be in the business at the right time for my character. I don't think I would have fit in at any other time. It just wouldn't have worked. I just happened to be at the right place at the right time on two different occasions. One was for Dallas and then one was for with Crockett. Yeah, because I mean, it, it is really being in the right place is important too, because like I was saying, it just seemed like what they were doing with you was like the total flip side of what WWF was doing. You know what I mean? It's like, so it was, it, it really epitomized what the difference between the two companies was and the kind of product. And one was maybe a little more kiddie and one was a little bit more for, for older fans and that kind of thing. Um, was there, and I, yeah, go well, on. I think back in the day and even then was like WWF was looked at as more of a show mm. and that people were like, kind of like, Oh, well, okay. That's wrestling. While with Crockett and more like Crockett and Tennessee and Mid-South and Texas, that wrestling was real. Now, we thought that, gonna, yeah. You weren't going to convince anybody other because there was at least one, maybe two matches on the card for like Crockett that there was no question that was that was real. That other stuff might be make-believe and fake and whatever they're doing. But that one, Tully Blanchard, if I saw him wrestle, that was for real. And that's what we wanted to portray yeah. if we went out there that's what we that thought there was no question on our work yeah when i was a kid i mean that's what we all thought that's what all the kids thought we and, he, and we were even growing up in wwf territory and we all thought okay yeah this is the show but what they're doing down there like those people are nuts like that's real right. they're they're really killing they're each actually other actually like, hitting each other they're yeah. actually hitting each other right <laughs> we exactly. did believe and that's we what we wanted yeah that's what we wanted, and that's why i think i worked so well on it because it wasn't like oh yeah little girl it was like damn she's doing something so it it uh it, there was a definite flip of the coin between the two two events so were you i think it, you've talked about this before but i mean so you were approached though by wwf at a certain point were you not or there was a tryout or something like that um i had trained up at nelson royals it was um my sister-in-law, Robin, and Ken Shamrock and myself had were training at the same time up there at Nelson's Ranch. Robin and I were actually living at the ranch, and we work out in the morning and in the evening when it was cool. And um, I forget where we were at, but we were at one of the TV tapings. And Sam came back and said that, hey, Lalani's here. Why don't you get your gear on? and go work out with her in the ring. She wants to see how you've been doing with your training. So, okay, sure. I just, the ring was set up. Sure, I'll go take some and bumps. you were there because Sam was there, Sam Houston. Sam, yeah, I, I actually at the time was working for Piedmont Airlines 
And when they had TVs, I would fly out to wherever they were at because they would be in the same place for two, three, four days in a row and then do a bunch of TVs. And this was once or twice a month. And then that way I could still see him because whenever he came home, he was home for like a day and then flew right back out. So there was basically enough time to do laundry and eat a good meal and sleep. And then they were out. Um, so at the, at the TV taping, so I went in and I just horsed around with Lonnie in the ring. I didn't, I didn't have any idea. It was like a tryout or anybody was watching or anything like that. So it's kind of like, going to uh, try out for a football team and and um you think that you're just going out there and catching a few passes when actually you've got the nfl owners watching and that's exactly what it was so um i kind of think as as a blessing because robin got the spot and she was able to become women's world champion and had some great matches with sherry and yeah and so there for a while it was jake was uh jake Riz, Robin, and Sam were all working for WWF at the same time. It was it was great for them. I I it it all worked out. It really did. And then you um I mean you you pretty much were were done with the business after that. I mean, there were a lot of fans, especially young men in in America who were very disappointed that that happened that it seemed like it, it ended too soon, too, too, too early. Well, it, it's a blessing because um, I was gone. There was no like humiliation. There was no, it, it left a question because of the very last thing that I did was the envelope with Dusty and, and Larry Zabisco. So whenever that came up, that angle still comes up a lot. Like what was in the envelope that was never finished, the whole thing. So that gets brought up a lot. I, I went and um, I was married to Sam. Sam and I got married in 86. I got pregnant in 1990 with our oldest daughter. She was born January 1st of 91. And I just decided I'd much rather be a really good mom than a bad mom and, and go out on the road. Because, I mean, if you're going to wrestle, you're out on the road 300 days out of the year. Otherwise, you're not going to be successful. And I just, I went off and was a mom for like 15 years and it worked out really well. I mean, I think I've, out of everything I've done, being a mom is, I've done the best. Well, I can definitely relate to that. Um, was there though, you know, is it true that there was some friction though, over the fact that you were working for Crockett and Sam was working for Vince? Was that an issue at all? Or even that, you, if I have the timeline wrong, just that I, I think no, that was it, at the same it, time, it's right? It's true. Yeah. Um, they, they were upset um, at first, even that I got married to, well, they were upset because I was even seeing Sam. Hmm. Then they were upset because Sam and I were engaged. And then they were upset because Sam and I got married. And um, actually, I got fired for it because they wanted to have like a single Marilyn Monroe type character and for me to be married to you know, like Sam, who was, you know, pretty much, you know, like how they call enhancement talent now. Um, I mean, he wasn't like a big football player or, or, you know, like one of the A A player team guys or anything like this. I mean, but Sam and I had a good marriage and, and had two beautiful daughters and things fell apart drastically after that. But 
um, at the time, they weren't real happy because they wanted me to be single. They wanted me to be like a Marilyn Monroe character, you know, like available, like I could be with anyone. And I, I hated that stigma because everyone thought I was fooling around with everybody whenever I was fooling around with no one. So, but it's right. hard to convince an audience that, you know, you're not fooling around with Dusty or you're not fooling around with Tolly or Flair or whose turn it is, you know, they, I kind of had that question on TV and, and even though I wasn't, it was just, it was really kind of embarrassing for me, you know, as you know, cause when you walk into somewhere, they kind of all think that you've been with everybody, but times have gone. So it's fine. But I would have much rather had like, cause they all had relationships. I mean, they were all married. They all had kids. Why couldn't I, have a boyfriend and a relationship and a marriage and have that separate than wrestling. But I guess it figured that I couldn't figure it out or something. I'm, I'm not quite sure. And then when Sam was in WWF and I was working for Crockett, I had gone to a couple of shows to see Sam and, you know, like I was in the audience, but I was like way in the back. Well, they didn't, they didn't want the interference. They didn't want anyone thinking, you know, whatever so it it didn't work out and um it just didn't work out and i had a really good career i have no complaints um i can see their point of view now that you know i've been out of the business for years and years that i can see their point of view that they really didn't want their talent sitting up in the stands of like a wwf show that they wanted their talent loyal to their promotion and their production because it was their money going into it it was their time going in it was their tv time it was their scheduling it was their script i mean you just follow the rules and it was different back then and right so, so who was i to say well this isn't going to work when it was working so and they could do without me and um it, it, it was humiliating at the time to not be, you know, you go in to see what your booking is are and you look at the booking sheet and your name's no longer on it. And they said, well, we just don't think that we're going to use you in the next couple of weeks. You might want to find something else to do in the meantime hmm. was uh, their way of letting you go. Cause they didn't actually let you go. They just quit put you, putting your name on the booking sheet. Right. Until you just took the hint. Right. Yeah. Well, it's, it's pretty obvious, you know, well, they, it, they, don't, they don't call you back anymore. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that sucks. I mean, especially cause I'm sure from their point of view, I'm not saying they were right. Cause I don't think they were, but from their point of view, this is the company that they're fighting head to head. It's, it's not just any wrestling company. This right. is the company that they're at war with. And that by that point, cause you're talking like 1988, it pretty much looks like they're going to lose. You know, you know what I mean? Like right. they're there. And and that probably added fuel to the fire. But still, I mean, it's a shame because you see today it happens all the time where you've got somebody in WWE that's dating or married to somebody in AEW. Like there's a few different examples like that or even in other companies. You know, it, it seems to be a little more accepted now. It was so taboo and it was so because kayfabe was still alive then. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we protected the business. We protect our promotion. If, if you're going to be over in this promotion, then you pretty much give 100% of yourself to that promotion. Whatever they want, you give it back to them. So, and 
I completely, now that I look back at it, I was very young. I was like 25, 26 at the time. It's hard to make good decisions when you're that young because you don't have the life experiences. You also don't think that it's going to end. And um, for them, they knew that this product is hot. This We've got to put everything into it because next month we might not be drawing nothing. And it, the business was just so fickle at the time that... Um, you know, you could you could be drawn out Charlotte, 20,000 people once a month and Raleigh and Greensboro and Baltimore and the whole thing. And then you hit a snag and four or five months from now, you're drawn 2000 people. Right. And that's not unusual. And you just had to protect it. And I look back at it now. They put a lot of money into me. They put a lot of TV time into me. Um. I don't want to say that I should have respected it more because I did. I just thought I could balance it and I was wrong. And, but I don't regret my decisions for anything because that would mean that I wouldn't have my children. I wouldn't have my two daughters. Um, and I couldn't imagine my life without them. So I have no regrets. The decisions that I made, it was all for a reason. And the girls now and the guys that are able to date and have relationships and uh, get married and not have any repercussions on your business have me to thank for that because I broke the ground <laughs> for everybody. I mean, I, I've i never known, it, and I'd say I got fired twice for it whenever you think about it because the first time I got fired was whenever I got married. And the second time was actually because I was going to WWF shows with with Sam just you know, just hang out with, with my family and oh, well. Well, I mean, it was a worthy reason to walk away. That's for sure. And, you know, having kids of my own. Place. Yeah, I'd be in a different place where I'm now. And I've got an amazing husband. We've got some really nice little property. Um, I'm raising his grandson. He's got like a little seven-year-old rider that's now become like my little boy. And, and my daughters are 29 and 31. And we've got a great relationship. And, you know, it all works out. And it was for a reason because I look at like the girls that I was working with back then, a lot of them have died. Right. A lot of them are, are not with us anymore. A lot of them have taken bad uh, paths and, and journeys. And I, I am very blessed. So for me to, uh, at the time, it was hard for me to understand, but I'm certainly a better person for it now. And I really have no regrets, none at all, because I'm in a really good place now. And um, if it was, if anything had changed and it would be different where I'm at now, and I wouldn't want to be anywhere else than where I'm at right now. Well, and, and I, I don't know your husband, but I hope that he has an appreciation of the fact that he's married to somebody who <laughs> millions of men would have wanted to marry. I mean, I oh, can say, he hates say. that. So he <laughs> hates, well, see, he's a wrestler. So that was part oh, of the reason okay. of the attraction, because I thought that he would know, like, me going out to events or getting booked to go to shows or Los Angeles or Atlanta or whatever. I thought he would understand, but no, it's, it's not good. You have to have, right, because yeah. well, I've got the jealousy, so I've got the possessiveness and I know that I mean the world to him, but he doesn't like, like photo shoots and, and uh, things like that. Cause he says, well, they look at you the way that they look at you. And it's like, honey, it's they're back in 1985. I said, that's the whole thing. I said, they're, they're 14 years old. It's 1985. Just, it's okay. I said, nobody's seen my boobs. I've not done any naked shots. They're not looking at me that way. 
they're looking at me as like they're 14 years old, it's 1985. And all of a sudden they're sitting on the couch with a grandparent. It's okay. <laughs> that's right. No, but that's it. You nailed it. And, and, you know, look, from his point of view, being myself married to a beautiful woman, you have to have um, a thick skin and a strong self-esteem to not, <laughs> to not get super jealous and take things personally. So my husband actually wrote me a fan letter whenever Crockett or whenever Cornette hit me with a tennis racket. He wrote a letter saying that he would take care of him. That just he, I just had to let him know. But he was like 14 at the time, so I don't know how much a 14 year old could have done. But he was serious. He was real serious. That's fantastic that that happened. Well, right. I mean, right. I just so then I guess I just want to say, obviously, you know, because we talked about what could have been, what might have been, what should have been, and all that stuff. It is what it is, and. For for what it was, you know, on behalf of the millions of fans, I, I I mean, I would thank you for what you gave us. You know, those years were that was a magic time to be a it wrestling was. fan. And you were an integral part of that. So, you know, thank you. It was it was so cool. And, and never in a million years would I have thought like 35, 40 years later, how many people would remember us? How many people that we were a part of their home? Because it's believe me it is so humbling when i think of like how many pictures have how many homes have my picture somewhere in a drawer or up in a wall or in a closet you know somewhere stuffed away or the vhs tapes or to watch on youtube and just bring back all those memories it's it's so cool it really is and i thank everyone who remember who remembers me who hits me up on twitter or facebook or hey you know just to say hi i you have no idea how much it means to me. It really does. And and it means a lot to me that you agreed to talk about it here with me, because that's what I've always wanted this show to be from the beginning is to preserve these kind of memories. And especially to get it from the people who were there is very special to me. So thank you. It's cool. It was very nice. Thank you so much. Thank you for remembering me. Most of all, appreciate it. Well, there you have it, folks. My conversation with the perfect 10 baby doll, a.k.a. Nicola Roberts Bird. I want to thank her for helping to make the 20th episode of Shut Up and Wrestle a very special one. And we're going to keep it going. I mean, I'm not, I, I didn't just get into this to make 20 episodes. No, no, no. We're going to keep rolling along and we have more amazing guests to come. I want to say that uh, next week, my guest on Shut Up and Wrestle, it'll be uh, a return to, to my theme of interviewing Titan Tower corporate employees, which I promised I was going to keep doing. I know many of you out there enjoyed the Deborah Jazzway interview that I did a few weeks ago. And this time I'm going to be interviewing Mike Fazioli, who was my direct report in the publications department when I worked at WWE. And he was the managing editor of Raw Magazine and the managing editor of WWE Magazine for a number of years in the early 2000s. So we're going to be talking about some of our memories and just our fond recollections of working for WWE at that time. And Mike's got some great stories. Mike's funny as hell. Mike does a great Lord Alfred Hayes. So he is going to be my guest next week. And continuing the magazine theme, I've also got coming up in the weeks to come, another Pro Wrestling Illustrated Luminary. That's right. I've had Stu Sachs on the show, 
and I have had Kevin McElvaney on the show. I've had Righteous Reg on the show. And now I've got Craig Peters, the legendary photographer and editor for Pro Wrestling Illustrated and the other Stanley Weston magazines, Craig Peters, coming up soon. More people in the works. I'll be able to announce more as it's as it's firmed up a little bit more. Of course, um, you can find this podcast on suawpod.com. You can find it on Spotify. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podcast Addict, or wherever you find great and noteworthy podcasts. And you know what? Also, let's not forget, we have a Facebook group. I've been mentioning this, right? The Shut Up and Wrestle Facebook group is the place to be. We talk all about the show. We comment on the guests. A lot of people were having fun with with, uh, last week's Howard Baum episode. And, uh, uh, you know, that's the place to do it for your comments, for your questions, uh, for, for thoughts about future guests. It's all going down there. It's on Facebook. Shut up and wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. Um, if you want to get the book, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real life story of wrestling's original chic, it's available in print form, in digital form and in audio form. OK, so go to Amazon.com or wherever you buy books online, you know, you might even be able to find it in the flesh in person in a real bookstore. If you still have one near you. Oh, of course, as I mentioned at the top of the show, I'm selling autographed copies as well. Shoot me an email at Brian R Solomon at yahoo.com. If you'd like one of those, if you want to catch up on the magazines that I write for, as I said, pro wrestling illustrated is available at getpwi.com, Also at PWI online.com as well as Inside the Ropes magazine, which I also write for, which you can buy online at insidetheropesmagazine.com. And if you're looking for me on social media, as I've said, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. You can also find me on Facebook. My author page on Facebook is at Brian Solomon Writer. And at any one of those social media platforms, you will find the link to my official author website, which I try to update as much as possible. So please do check it out. So as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and posing to you the eternal question. If Mickey is a mouse, Donald is a duck, and Pluto is a dog, what the hell is Goofy? So long, wrestling fans. 